Today, we're going to explore the sacred feminine, how she has been revered throughout history and around the world, and how embracing the sacred feminine can contribute to a healthier, more balanced future for our species and our planet. The most recent issue of the Rosicrucian Digest was just released. So if you go to rosicrucian.org, and then at the top of that page, it says texts. And then under text, you have Rosicrucian Digest. And this issue is uh, featuring the sacred feminine, some beautiful articles. The Rosicrucian teachings tell us that when the energy making up our bodies is out of harmony, it results in disease. At first, we just have some symptoms. And then when we don't get back into balance or harmony, it becomes a disease. This happens within our cells and it happens within a particular organ and with all of our systems. And all of the Rosicrucian healing techniques are based on reharmonizing the energy, the vibrations in our body. And we call these positive and negative vibrations, but that's just a way of describing polarities. Now, in the same way, each of us is a cell within our family, and we're a cell within our community and in our country, and we're a cell within all beings on earth. And when each individual is not in perfect harmony, just like in our body, it creates disharmony or disease. Now, we have the disharmony that human beings have created in the world has affected the harmony of all beings on earth and the waters that we have polluted with our disharmony and the mountains that we have ravaged and the air that we have disturbed, the harmonious balance of. In fact, this disharmony, this imbalance is threatening our entire species and earth itself, life on earth itself. This past December, the Secretary General of the United Nations presented a report on the state of the planet and said, we are facing a devastating pandemic, new heights of global heating, new lows of ecological degradation, and new setbacks in our work towards global goals for more equitable, inclusive, and sustainable development. To put it simply, the state of the planet is broken. In 2001, the Rosicrucian order published a manifesto called the Positio Fraternitatis Rosae Crucis. And it's a Rosicrucian statement about the state of the world. And here is an excerpt from the Positio, which was published 20 years ago. History repeats itself and regularly reenacts the same events, though generally on a broader scale. Thus, almost four centuries after the publication of the first three manifestos, we notice that the entire world is facing an unprecedented existential crisis in all spheres, political, economic, scientific, technological, religious, moral, artistic, etc. Moreover, our planet, the environment in which we live and evolve, is gravely threatened, elevating in importance the relatively recent science of ecology. Certainly, present-day humanity is not faring well. That is why, faithful to our tradition and our ideal, we, the Rose Croix of today, have deemed it advisable to address this crisis through this positio. 
one of the primary causes of the disharmony that we're experiencing in the world, this extreme imbalance, is a hidden system that confers dominance on one polarity over the other, on the masculine over the feminine, at least what humans have determined to be the masculine. And often this can be described as patriarchy. This may not mean you personally, and it may, even without your conscious awareness. This system confers dominance on an elite group that controls most of our societies. And it's easy for us to prove this for ourselves. If you follow a religion, is the leader of your religion a woman or a man? Is the deity in your religion described with masculine words? For example, he and him. How many women have served as the president of your country? I'm not referring to any particular candidates, just generally, like a, a rough number. How many women have served as the president of your country? In the United States, 245 year history, is it really possible that not one woman has been qualified to serve as president? Really, not one. If you live outside the United States, how about your country? According to the Council on Foreign Relations, out of the 193 United Nation member states, 22 have female heads of state. That's 12%. But women make up 49.5% of the world population. Now, of those, 22 female heads of state. We have Angela Merkel of Germany, who's going to be retiring soon. Paula May Weeks of Trinidad and Tobago. Jacinda, Jacinda Ardern of New Zealand. Mia Motley of Barbados. Sana Marin of Finland and others. When women make up a critical mass of legislatures, around 25 to 30%, they are more likely to challenge established conventions and policy agendas. They're also more likely to cross party lines to find common ground. Female law, lawmakers are also more likely to advocate for policies that support education and health and to pass and implement in legislation that advances gender equality, including laws on domestic violence, rape and sexual harassment. Many studies have shown that women's inclusion at leadership tables promotes stability. One study found that when women's parliamentary representation increases by 5%, a country is almost five times less likely to respond to an international crisis with violence. Within countries, women's parliamentary representation is associated with a decreased risk of civil war and lower levels of state-perpetrated human rights abuses, such as disappearances, killings, political imprisonment, and torture. You may be surprised to learn that many women support patriarchal control, even if they're unaware of it. Invisible systems such as gender roles and perceived safety and the perpetuation of their perceived standard of living contribute to this. But this is an illusion. We've been misled for generations to believe that this system is good for us. In the United States, women with the same experience and education have to work until April 15th to make as much money as a man made in the same position the previous year through December 31st. And it's much longer than that for women of color. So a man worked through December 31st of last year, but a woman needed to work until April 15th to make the same amount of money for the same job. Worldwide, women only earn 77 cents per dollar 
that men make. Now, it seems like this should be front, new, front page news, doesn't it? But it isn't because there is this system conferring dominance on patriarchy. One out of every three girls in the developing world marries before age 18, often without their consent. Every year, 14 million girls worldwide marry before age 18. And this is rooted in gender inequality. And let's look at education. Over 132 million girls are out of school. According to UNICEF, barriers to girls' education include poverty, child marriage, and gender-based violence. Poor families often favor boys when investing in education. So the system perpetuates itself. Harmful social norms can prevent change from happening in female, female education. Over 25% of people surveyed by UNESCO believe that a university education is more important for a boy. What do you think? Do you think that a university education is more important for a boy? Again, there is an invisible system that confers dominance, in this case, on boys. You may be familiar with Malala, the activist for female education originally from Pakistan. Her father was a teacher and ran a school, a girl's school in her village. When Malala was 11 years old, the Taliban took control of their town and prohibited girls from going to school. But Malala spoke out publicly on behalf of girls and their rights to learn. And this made her a target. Can you imagine the courage of that young girl? In 2012, when she was 15 years old, as she was on her way home from school, she was talking with her friends on the bus about their homework. And two masked gunmen boarded the school bus, and one said, who is Malala? And shot at her three times. And one bullet entered her head and exited, and then lodged in her shoulder. Malala woke up 10 days later in the hospital in England. And after months of surgeries and rehabilitation, she joined her family in their new home in the UK. And she's written that it was then that she decided to dedicate her life. She knew she had a choice. She wrote, I could live a quiet life or I could make the most of this new life I have been given. I determined to continue my fight until every girl could go to school. With her father, she established the Malala Fund dedicated to giving every girl an opportunity to achieve a future she chooses. In recognition of their work, Malala received the Nobel Peace Prize in 2014 and became the youngest ever Nobel laureate. According to UNESCO, a single year of primary education can increase a girl's wages later in life by up to 20%, one year of primary school. An extra year of secondary school can increase their wages by up to 25%. And women invest up to 90% of their income back into their family compared to the average 30 to 40% that men invest back into their households. This is according to the United Nations. They found that increasing the share of household income by, controlled by women changes spending in ways that benefit children. Oxfam is a major nonprofit organization that's a confederation of 20 independent charitable organizations focusing on alleviating global poverty. And they just announced that women lost $800 billion in income last year, 
women lost $800 billion in lost wages just in 2020 during the pandemic. That's more than the combined gross domestic product of 98 countries. So this situation is going to get worse. Millions of women worldwide have been disproportionately affected by job losses with, because many of them are responsible for childcare and education. And there've been massive disruptions to childcare and education. Mara Bolas with Oxfam says that we are facing a crisis of inequality, or we were facing a crisis of inequality before 2020, and that's now exploded. That's as a result of a lack of attention to gender sensitivity policymaking and leaving women on their own to cope with this crisis and to absorb the systemic failures that have led us to this point. Women make up two thirds of the world's labor force. So women make up two thirds of the world's labor force and women own 1% of the world's wealth. This inequality and extreme disharmony have not always existed. There have been periods when the masculine and feminine were more harmonized, more in balance. Maria Gambutis was an archeologist and anthropologist known for her research into the Neolithic and Bronze Age cultures that she named Old European. And they existed from around 6,500 BCE to 3,500 BCE. It was previously believed that so-called civilization began thousands of years after these old Europeans, for example, around the year 3,200 BCE. Some of you may be familiar with Joseph Campbell. He compared the importance of Maria Gambutis's work to the historical importance of the Rosetta Stone in deciphering Egyptian hieroglyphs. Maria Gambutis described the old European culture. It was female-centered, not, not male-dominated. Everyone enjoyed equal rights. These were peaceful cultures without weapons. No weapons have been found, no forts have been found from this period. It appears there was no warfare, no kings or conquest. People were very connected with each other and they considered earth to be sacred. They were hunter gatherers who finally settled down, allowing them to create agriculture, weaving, and pottery. And then came the Kurgan invasions, K-U-R-G-A-N, the Kurgan invasions. Beginning about 6,000 years ago and coinciding with the taming of the horse, copper, copper age people expanded from their homeland in what's now called the Pontic Caspian steppe area. So they came from this area that today is mostly in uh, Ukraine and Russia and Western Kazakhstan. They came in waves, overwhelming the Neolithic farmers of Europe. And then they conquered Central Asia, India, and later the Balkans and Anatolia. And recent genetic research has since verified Maria Gambudis's hypothesis. So, the Kurgan invaders were hierarchical and male ruled. Everyone was not equal. They worshiped a sky god. They had class stratification between the rich and the poor. They built fortified towns and there's evidence of weapons. This dominance has continued to some extent since then. A good example is in Delphi, Greece. And we've spoken in a number of teleconferences about the oracles of Delphi. And there was worship in Delphi and oracular activity being women who were able to see beyond the usual limits of time and space 
probably from at least 3,500 BCE. And at first, the oracles sat on an outdoor stone, this craggy rock that's still in Delphi, and they would present their oracles seated outside. But after this invasion, whether it was the Kurgans or as shown in Olympian myths, the deities, the Olympian deities that invaded Greece, after that invasion, the oracles didn't speak directly to the inquirers, they spoke on behalf of the deity Apollo. In the myths of ancient Greece, Apollo is described as slaying the Pythia. This is the serpent who is associated with the divine feminine. And he, he killed the Pythia, which was another name for the oracles. He, he slayed the Python in Delphi, and then the worship shifted to him. This is similar to Patrick of Ireland. Some people call him St. Patrick, who is often described as driving the snakes out of Ireland. The snakes are associated with um, the divine feminine. So this is a way of describing the extermination of the worship of the sacred feminine. Now in ancient Egypt, over thousands of years, the deities were worshiped and viewed in different ways. For example, Isis at first was a secondary figure to Osiris. She was his wife and his sister and his helper. But over thousands of years, she became the queen of the universe and controlled fate itself. But by the time the Romans had conquered Egypt, in 394 of our era, the Roman emperor Theodosius banned all of the ancient traditions, including the worship of the goddess Isis. Now, early in Roman history, some of the emperors actually participated in celebrations of Isis, but by 394, all of the ancient traditions in the Roman Empire were forbidden. I've already mentioned the oracles in Greece. There's also Demeter and Persephone. Persephone was kidnapped to the underworld by Hades and her mother Demeter searched everywhere looking for her. And this is a way of describing our yearning for a reconnection to the divine mother, our yearning for a return to our divine mother. And there's a great article in this issue of the Rosicrucian Digest on the Eleusinian mysteries and how the people of ancient Greece participated in this ritual related to Demeter and Persephone. Now in Roman times, especially toward the end of the Roman Empire, women had basically no rights at all. Only a handful of elite women had any rights at all. Women were considered property. They were considered chattel. Now we're going to look at some other traditions. We're going to look at Christianity and the idea that Eve tempted an innocent Adam and created this original sin. For most of Eastern Christianity, Orthodox Christianity, Judaism, and Islam, they reject the idea of original sin. There is no stain of sin on the soul before baptism. Rather, humanity inherits the consequences of an ancestral sin. Now, the misogynistic Western version that Eve, and therefore all women, are the gateway to sin was especially promoted by a Latin theologian named Tertullian. He wrote, you are the devil's gateway. On account of your punishment for sin, even the son of God had to die. But this was not supported in, this was not supported with text. 
This was not supported in the tradition. This was the position of this individual. And this idea was carried on into the Middle Ages by the Dominicans who used this idea to justify the persecution of witches. And then Augustine and Cassian and Luther are also guilty of propagating this view and equated original sin with lust. They seize the opportunity to persecute and degrade women. Here is what Augustine, the Bishop of Hippo said, He's, um, he was canonized and is often called St. Augustine. What is the difference whether it is in a wife or a mother? It is still Eve, the temptress that we must be aware of in any woman. I fail to see what use woman can be to a man if one excludes the function of bearing children. St. Albertus Magnus wrote, woman is a begotten man and has a faulty and defective nature in comparison to his. What she cannot get, she seeks to obtain through lying and diabolical deceptions. And so to put it briefly, one must be on one's guard with every woman as if she were a poisonous snake and the horned devil. Thus in evil and perverse doings, Woman is cleverer, that is, slyer than a man. Her feelings drive woman toward every evil, just as reason impels man toward all good. Again, Albertus Magnus was um, a Dominican theologian who was canonized, so he's often called Saint Albertus. And uh, not to be outdone, Martin Luther, the reformer, in the reformer, wrote, the word and works of God is quite clear, that women were made either to be wives or prostitutes. This leads us to Mary Magdalene, who is often errone erroneously portrayed as a prostitute. Some of you may be familiar with the Gospel of Mary, which was discovered in Egypt in the late 1800s, but interestingly wasn't published until 1955. And it argued that leadership should be based on spiritual maturity, regardless of whether one is male or female. This is the gospel of Mary Magdalene. This gospel lets us hear an alternative voice to the one dominated, to the one dominant in the canonized works, which tried to silence women and insist that their salvation lies in bearing children. So the Gospel of Mary was only found recently in the late 1880s. So all the changes that took place to the previous biblical texts, those changes weren't in this original Gospel. And here's what it says. It's a very short text, and you can easily find it online. Peter said, did he meaning Jesus, did he really speak with a woman without our knowledge and not openly? Are we to turn about and all listen to her? Did he prefer her to us? In the Gospel of Mary, Mary Magdalene says that Jesus appeared to her and shared things with her that weren't shared with the other disciples. Then Mary wept and said to Peter, my brother Peter, what do you think? Do you think that I thought this up myself in my heart or that I am lying about the savior? Levi answered and said to Peter, Peter, you have always been hot tempered. Now I see you contending against the woman like the adversaries. But if the savior made her worthy, who are you indeed to reject her? Surely the savior knows her very well. That is why he loved her more than us. This text is from the second century, so it's a very old text. Although the decline of Mary of Magdala, that's Mary Magdalene, she's from Magdala, although the decline of her reputation as apostle and leader probably began shortly after her death, the transformation to penitent prostitute was sealed in the year 591 when Pope Gregory the Great 
gave a homily. He made an official statement in Rome that pronounced that Mary Magdalene, which was Luke's unnamed sinner, and Mary of Bethany were indeed the same person. He wrote, she whom Luke calls the sinful woman, whom John calls Mary, we believe to be the Mary from whom seven devils were ejected, according to Mark. Gregory, the Pope, said in his 23rd homily, and what did these seven devils signify, if not all the vices? It is clear, brothers, that the woman previously used the unguent to perfume her flesh in forbidden acts. End quote. Recently, Pope Francis subscribed to the Catholic Church's long tradition of male priesthood because Jesus chose only men as his apostles and because their understanding that a priest acts in the person of Christ so, much be, so must be male. The church has always responded to criticism of the ban on women priests by pointing out that Jesus only chose men as his apostles. Yet in this Gnostic gospel, the gospel of Mary, found after the previous gospels had been edited, or found after they had been edited, Mary appears as not only a disciple, but singled out by Jesus for special teachings. The Vatican puts the attempted ordination of women in the same category of crime under church law as clerical sex abuse of minors. The adoration of Mary, the mother of Jesus. So we have Mary Magdalene, the disciple of Jesus, and we have Mary, the mother of Jesus. There were times in history where she was worshiped as the queen of heaven. Some popes, some Roman Catholic popes encouraged this and others attacked it. And there are practices even today where members in certain tradition, traditions um, perform prayers and meditations attuning with Mary, the mother of Jesus. Now in Vatican II, which was a special meeting held from 1962 to 1965, the Roman Catholic Church sought to modernize itself and to bring the church into the modern age. So there were many changes that were, that were more inclusive. Also, Mary, Queen of Heaven, was scaled down in her role. Charlene Spretnak, who has written a book about the adoration of Mary and how it's changed over the centuries, the states of Mary, said that Mary, Queen of Heaven, was scaled down to her new role as Mary, just a housewife, albeit a pious forerunner of the church. In Islam, there are more than 50 references to Jesus in the Quran and more than 15 to Mary, his mother. Mary is the only woman mentioned in the Quran by name. And nowhere in the Quran do we find any trace of any notion of blaming Eve for the first mistake or for eating from the forbidden tree. Nowhere in the Quran does it say woman is to be blamed for the fall of man. It does say, O oh messenger, who among humankind is worthy of my kindness and love? The prophet answered, your mother. Who next? Your mother. Who next? Your mother. Only after the third time did he say, and your father. However, the Quran also says, wives have the same rights as the husbands have, on them in accordance with the generally known principles. Of course, men are a degree above them in status. The Quran also states that the share of the male shall be twice that of a female. Now, the view of women and the sacred feminine in Buddhism is very interesting. For Buddhist 
nuns, they have eight additional requirements than the male monks. They require women to respect monks, to undergo additional discipline training, and to not worship in a space devoid of their male counterparts. There are over 600 million Buddhist women in the world. A few years ago, the English Grand Lodge organized a journey to Bhutan, and we were invited to a convent, a Buddhist convent in Bhutan. And they allowed us to chant with them. It was this touching and beautiful experience. And we had brought some gifts and we wanted to share it with these women who we all are a group of men and women, frauders and sorors. We had all enjoyed our time with them, but we weren't allowed it to present to the women. They had to go get a male Buddhist monk and we had to give it to him. And then it was eventually distributed to them. In 1998, a, an American surgeon named Leonard Schlein published a book called The Alphabet Versus the Goddess. The Alphabet Versus the Goddess, the conflict between word and image. And he argues that learning a written language has many, many benefits. But especially when learning an alphabetic language, it alters human brain function in a way that emphasizes linear thinking over holistic thinking. To, to perceive things such as trees and buildings through images delivered to the eye, the brain uses wholeness, simultaneity, and synthesis. But to understand the meaning of alphabetic writing, the brain relies on sequence, analysis, and abstraction. So images are perceived all at once, but words are perceived mostly one by one. And Leonard Schlein offers that this too was a way of moving from the more holistic feminine view to the more sequential, analytical, and abstract male view. Other, contributors, other contributors to the dominance of one polarity over another could be the invention of private property, the formation of archaic states, and the creation of surplus wealth. All of these things contributed to the imbalance that we experience today. Rianne Eisler wrote a book entitled The Chalice and the Blade, and she describes the chalice, which is a partnership model. That's um, where social relations are based on the principle of linking instead of ranking. And that the sacred feminine embraced the chalice. Again, relations are based on the principle of linking versus the blade, which is a dominator model. The ranking of half of humanity over the other half. Now in dominator models, human hierarchies are ultimately, ultimately backed up by force or the threat of force. So when it was the chalice tradition, when it was social relations based on the principle of collaboration and cooperation and linking, this was different than the dominator model that came with whoever the conquerors were, whether it was Kurgans or people who came later, who dominated by hierarchy. And those hierarchies were backed up by force to perpetuate their dominance. Rianne Eisler wrote, the root of the problem, and these are the problems that we're facing in society, the tensions that exist everywhere, We've seen it in politics, in every country around the world. The root of the problem lies in a social system in which the power of the blade is idealized, in which both men and women are taught to equate true masculinity with violence and dominance, and to see men who do not conform to this ideal as too soft or effeminate. 
And again, this book by Rhea Neisler is called The Chalice and the Blade. We published in this issue of the Rosicrucian Digest and a chapter from a book by Paula Gunn Allen, PhD. And she is a scholar who grew up on the Laguna Pueblo in New Mexico. And she offers that many Native American tribes were gynocentric, gyno meaning women, with women making the most important decisions. And other tribes stressed a balance between male and female rather than domination. And this is similar to the old European culture described by Maria Gambutis. Paula Gunn Allen wrote, the essential nature of the cosmos is female intelligences. That is goddesses. There are several rather, there are several rather than one indicating that multiplicity is a fundamental characteristic of all that is. The primacy of relationship is also expressed in the kinship of the creatrix intelligences, the intelligence, the, the great spirit, the intelligence of the universe, pointing to the basic organization of the multiverse or cosmos. The multi-intelligences think in relationship context. What changes or transformations occur are simply vast energy or intelligence fields doing what they do in concert, in harmony, and in significance." End quote. So how can we, what, what can we do? How can we help to create more harmony in the energy around us? As Polygon Allen wrote, the vast energy or intelligence fields doing what they do in concert, in harmony, in significance. First, we can be aware of this invisible system that confers dominance to one polarity. And when we talk about patriarchy, this isn't something that only applies to historical events in the past. It controls us today. This is that imbalance. This is that one pole that so outweighs the other pole. We are dominated by patriarchy. Even men who are living in this very unwell society and women who subconsciously support the system even when it is contrary to their well-being because they feel that it protects the status quo and they believe that this disease status quo is somehow protecting what they want. The second thing we can do is to shift our focus to a more harmonious balance between energy, the masculine and feminine, for the good of all beings and our planet. Using the Rosicrucian principle of harmony of polarities, the negative and positive, which again doesn't mean good and bad, the male and the female. We can establish relationships and create these energy, intelligent fields, doing what they do in balance, in concert and in harmony. Now, I'm going to share my favorite piece of artwork, <laughs> artwork in the world. Let me share my screen. This is my favorite work of art in the world. It's called The Dinner Party, and it is on display in the Brooklyn Museum in New York. And this table is a banquet table with 39 place settings. It takes up an entire gallery. And the dinner party was created by an artist named Judy Chicago. She was in a uh, European history class many years ago. And her professor said, they were talking about all, the, they're talking about European history. And he said at the beginning of the class that he was, you know, that they would talk about uh, the contributions of women to European history. And on the last day of the semester, he hadn't mentioned any women. And he, when he was asked about this, 
He said, oh, women? Why, they made no contributions to European history. And this shocked the student, Judy Chicago, who then researched what contributions women had made to European society, to societies all over the world. And it resulted in this amazing work of art. Each of these three uh, wings are 48 feet long. And this is in the shape of a triangle because that symbolizes equality. And there are 39 place settings here that are dedicated to important women in history. And then on the floor, there are 999 names of more women who have also contributed. And hold on here. Here, is, here are some of the place settings. They included art that was typically done by women, but overlooked over throughout history. This would be weaving and ceramics and needlepoint. This place setting is dedicated to the primordial goddess. This place setting is dedicated to Sophia. This one to Hatshepsut of ancient Egypt. Sappho, the Greek poetess. Hypatia, the brilliant woman in Alexandria, Egypt, the Neoplatonist. Hildegard of Bingen, and we've spoken about Hildegard many times. So you can see her place setting is based on this image that Hildegard of Bingen, who was a German mystic who had visions, the place setting was based on a vision that you can see on the right. That's the vision that Hildegard of Bingen had. And then these women, or this team that created the dinner party, created a place setting based on her vision. And it took them, there were over 400 collaborators on the dinner party. And they worked on this work of art over five years. Here is the place setting dedicated to Sojourner Truth and Susan B. Anthony. And here is the artist, Judy Chicago, in front of this amazing work of art. So we are going to spend about five minutes inviting who we want to come to this table. Who needs to be at the dinner party? What women's voices need to be invited to this conversation in order to create more harmony in our world? And I chose my, my three invitees. I chose Jane Goodall, for her compassion toward all beings and her extraordinary commitment over decades for the good of all beings in our planet. And I chose amazing Malala for her wisdom and her remarkable courage. Here she is today, she's 23 years old now. It's hard to believe that. She's, she's really just so inspiring to me. And my third invitee is Judy Chicago for her spunk. Her history professor said women had made no contributions to European history over thousands of years, no contributions. And at first she was hurt by this and disappointed. And I chose her to be invited for her spunk and her cleverness and her creative talent in bringing together 400 people to create this work of art and in the idea for it. So I invite you now, if you have three pieces of paper, draw a circle on each piece of paper. And if you have paper plates, choose three paper plates. And I'll let you know when five minutes is up, take five minutes 
in order to create an image that represents your invitation. This could be your mom, it could be your daughter, your wife, anybody who you feel their voice needs to be heard at the dinner party. So we are going to extend our invitations into the world. We're going to extend this energy into the world, inviting these voices to the table. And if you'd like to share the names of those that you think should be invited to the dinner table, you can put all three of them or even more We're going to um, send our invitations into the world by intoning the vowel sound ma three times. Ready? Ready. Inhale. Mm -hmm. uh, For the good of all beings in our planet, so mote it be.